Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Nick and Jake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mick. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. Alongside Jake Gunderson for this episode, I'm joined for the second time this season by Andrew Marsden, friend of the show and full-time macOS developer. Oh, I mean, that is what we call it now, right? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm trying to switch over, but I'm being gradual about it. Okay. it's going to be OS ten for me for a while. Up until when? September? October? They, they always say fall, so you're never quite sure when they ship the, uh, the OS, oh, the Mac OS. It's never at the same time as iOS, is it? No, it seems like it's always um, a little later, but September, October. I'm trying to call it Mac OS whenever I'm talking about new stuff, and then I just call it OS ten when I'm talking about okay. old stuff. I think we've. <laughs> I'm, I think, I'm half kidding. <laughs> I, th- <laughs> I think we flipped the. Uh, we flipped it on the site. Yeah, we have flipped it on the site, so we are fully Mac OS. Um, right. So same as last time, I flipped the hourglass. The next twenty minutes are yours, Andrew. Thanks, Mick. So I wanted to talk today, uh, the last time I was on, we talked about some of the technical uh, things around developing for, for Mac OS if you're an iOS developer. Today I wanted to talk more about why somebody might want to, to write Mac apps, um, some of the sort of things about developing for the Mac that are that are really nice, and particularly around making money doing that. So I, I, I think one thing that just really comes up quick is that on iOS uh, at this point, a 99 cent cent app is actually sort of expensive. And and it turns out that a lot of the apps that are really making money are doing that using the free within app purchase model, which has upsides, but it's also got some, some real downsides. And on the Mac, on the other hand, there's still this idea that you can charge money for, for good software and, and people will actually pay for it. And I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure how that, how that has worked out or why it's worked out that way, but, uh, it's still, viable to sell a 10 or 20 or $40 app on, on the Mac or even um, charge even more. I think uh, Sketch is actually an example that comes to mind right away, which is a pretty successful Mac app developed by what I think is a fairly small company, and, and they charge $100 for, for a copy of Sketch, and, and people happily pay it. Um, I think a big part of of why that is is also something that, that makes developing for the Mac nice just as a developer. And that is that uh, there are these sort of professional niches where you can really stand out because people are using their Mac to make money, to get a job done, and means they're willing to pay for tools that will help them do that. Um, of course, there, there's a downside here. That is that software is tends to be more complex on the Mac, I think. You know, there there's... There's more to think about, and, and if you're going to expect somebody to pay a, a decent amount of money for your app, it, it better actually do something for them that is useful. And so I think, uh, you know, being able to charge more money not only is nice because it feels good to get paid 20 bucks for a copy of your app as, as opposed to 99 cents, but it actually makes the, the, the business in some ways work out better. You're not going to sell the same volume on the Mac that you might sell on iOS. Partly that's because there just aren't as many Macs out there as there are iOS devices. It's also probably partly because when you're charging higher prices, you are limiting your market. But I think it's actually in some ways a positive that uh, your your the number of customers you have might be smaller because it turns out that a big part of running a business where you're selling apps or, or making money on apps is doing customer support. 
And you can spend a lot more time and effort helping somebody that has paid you $20 or $40 or something than you can somebody who's paid you 99 cents. By the time you even open and read an email from somebody that's paid you 99 cents, you've probably wasted more time looking at that or spent more time looking at that than the 99 cents is worth. I don't mean to interrupt you, but also just just before we move on, uh, like the value of that customer, like is it that customer support issues from somebody that's paid you like $60 or $100, like more genuine than somebody that's only paid you 99 cents. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, 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 I definitely think you get user, you tend to get users that are more invested in your software, meaning they, uh, they care more about it. They're more likely to have sort of done their research and to be informed. And they also, um, you know, they, they want to get value out of it. So they'll kind of, they'll kind of stick with it. At least that's what I've found. And I, I sell a Mac app that's $40 and I've got users that have, that have used it now for as long as it's been out, which is uh, going on 10 years. And, um, I, you know, if, if, it feels good to know that, that people actually value that app enough to pay $40. And, and in turn, uh, they tend to be really good for me in, in the sense that they'll give me feedback. They'll, they'll do beta testing, um, et cetera, because they consider the app a, an actually valuable thing for their life. I wanted to ask kind of your perspective, Andrew, a little bit on, the idea that you can make it, it it's, it's easier or there's there's a place for smaller developers because it seems like I know I know you well enough to know that you have seen apps uh, from the inside that have been featured on the Mac App Store which is kind of you know the holy grail of on, at least on the iOS App Store getting an app featured is a very big deal and you can make a lot of money I know you've had apps that you've worked on that have been featured in the Mac App Store my impression is that that, that those coveted top slots on the Mac app store aren't worth nearly as much as the top slots on the iOS app store. Um, but I do also get the impression that it's easier to have that, that the distribution on the iOS app store is more extreme. So there's a lot more money at the top in, you know, those however many slots, but underneath that, it very quickly drops to next to nothing where on the Mac app store, it's easier to, to be like a solo developer and have one app that's 40 bucks and, and make a, make a decent living. Uh, where that seems to be much harder on the on the iOS app store. That's my impression. What is your impression of that? I think you're basically right, and I, I think you know a big part of this is just that the Mac App Store is uh, much smaller. There are way fewer apps. I don't I don't actually know what the count is right now, but it's not a million and a half or two million or however many are on the iOS App Store. It's a it's a small fraction of that, like a few thousand, ten, twenty thousand maybe apps on the Mac App Store. So you've got less competition just in terms of getting noticed. Uh, on the other hand, my impression is that people use the Mac App Store less, and uh, it seems like, and especially I think this was true at the beginning, although to some degree I still think it's true that people open the App Store on their iPhone because they just, just to look at what's new, you know, not because they're even really looking for something, but just, ah, I just want to see what's new on the App Store today, they go through the featured apps, you know, they see something they like, they buy it, um, so that being featured really is just a huge thing. Whereas on the Mac App Store, I get the impression that people kind of open it up looking for something specifically and are more likely to, to search to find some tool that solves a problem. At least that's that aligns more closely with how I use the App Store. I, I do want to, this, this sort of leads me to another thing I want to talk about, which is that on the Mac, unlike on iOS, you don't have to sell your apps on the App Store. You can sell them outside the App Store, and that uh, was you know, the way Mac developers did things for a long time before the App Store came along. And the Mac App Store came out in 
early 2011, so it's it's actually even newer than the iOS App Store. And I, you you talk to any developer that sells their apps on the Mac App Store, and they will very very quickly be able to start complaining about the Mac App Store. Um, I think a lot of us really do feel like Apple has not given it the attention that uh, we think it deserves, and that has led to some really you know seems like a lot of missed potential in terms of the Mac App Store. And I I think it's actually hard to make money on on the Mac App Store. It seems like there are, there are upsides, and some of them are the same upsides as the iOS App Store, but there are also these pretty pretty bad downsides. I think I definitely agree with your uh, assessment of behavior. I mean, I I you know I'll, I can hold my hands up and and say that I act basically exactly how how you suggested people act. I routinely check the iOS App Store Thursday evening my time because that's when all the apps change over because they rotate the apps on a Thursday. And then if I'm bored, if I've got five minutes to kill and I've read all my tweets and I've checked the BBC News and you know I've gone through all my emails and I've literally got no other app to open, but I've got five minutes to kill in my phone in my hand, I will then open the App Store and look at the charts or you know the, the pay charts or the free charts or whatever and just have a look what's you know what's out there, what's changing. Usually very little. But with regards to the Mac App Store, I mean, I... So I work on a Mac like 10, 12 hours a day sometimes and, um, you know, five, six days a week. And I may only open the Mac App Store if I know I need to install something like, for instance, Slack or Dash or something like that. Or I get one of them little pop-up notifications that says I've got some updates pending, but they need me to go in and, you know, accept them before they can install them or whatever my behavior between the two stores is very, very different. And and I think, like you say, I think it's because, especially from the outside, it looks like the Mac App Store is very much an afterthought for Apple and they've put nowhere near as much emphasis on it as they have with the iOS one. And therefore, people haven't been trained into using it all the time. I think the other thing that they missed with, with it was that when Game Center was available on the Mac, it was a separate app. Uh, I, I think it's gone now. I'm pretty sure it's not on there. It's, it's been killed off. Oh, no, it's, it's still there. <laughs> She's not logged into it for a very long time. But it's a separate app, whereas, say, something like Steam, which is very popular, another platform for distribution, um, ties the two together. So when you buy something, if you want to use it, you have to launch it through... You know, you have to go into that, that product to be able to launch other product. And while you're in there, you get all your profile information and all that kind of stuff. So they they're always looking like it's very two different ways of of marketing products because one is where they're almost forcing you to go through that channel to be able to use anything you've purchased whereas the mac app store is like you buy it you download it you never really have to open the store again um so i definitely as well see that there's um there's an appeal to selling your software outside the mac app store so i don't know if you want to talk about that a bit more yeah, I, I do want to talk about that. I, I have an app um, that I mentioned. It's called Ether. It's a ham radio logging app that I've sold now for, uh, well, I've, I released it actually free for, at first, but I've had it out there for almost 10 years now, and I had it on the App Store. I was, so I sold it on my website for a long time, and I got it into the Mac App Store on day one and um, continue to sell it both places. And so I, I have a little bit of perspective on, uh, you know, 
app store versus non app store. And actually at my last job at mixed in key where, uh, where I worked with Jake for a while, we sold all of our software on our website. And some of that we also put on the Mac app store. So I, I, I have some idea about the differences. Um, one thing that I think is really a, a big plus for, for selling outside the, the app store is that you don't have any of the app store uh, review guidelines that you really have to follow. And of course, some of those guidelines are, are, you know, all of them in one way or another are there for a good reason, but some of them end up making it so you can't sell perfectly viable software because it falls afoul of some guideline. And one, one of the guidelines on the Mac app store is that your app has to be sandboxed, uh, has to use app sandboxing, which is a, you know, good security technology, but it certainly limits what your app can do. Well, if you don't sell your app on the app store, there's no such requirement. You can still do the same old stuff you have always been able to, to do in a non-sandboxed app. Um, and, and of course, there are other things, but not having to go through app review kind of opens up the possibilities. I hope for most people that's not a, a huge consideration because I think most most apps can you know be done in such a way that they comply with the guidelines. But another big one is, is that you get to keep basically 100% of the sale price. Um, Apple takes a 30% cut, and in my mind, especially at this point, I'm not sure if you're really getting a whole lot for that 30% with the Mac App Store. We just talked about it not being really great at driving traffic, so you still need to do your own advertising and marketing. Um, I guess the distribution part of that is nice, but I'm not sure if it's 30% of the price nice. So being able to keep a, a big chunk of the sale price is, is a good thing. Of course, you'll end up paying a payment processor, you know, 3 5%, something like that. Uh, but it's not 30%. I wanted to ask a little, push a little bit more on that point because I hear that touted a lot that that um, you know Apple takes thirty percent, and I think I think because the you know the incremental cost of another copy of your software is zero. Really, the question is, do you cannibalize your own distribution channel by selling it on the App Store, right? Because if you if you just have access to a new market and you're selling it and you're paying Apple 30% for access to that, to that group of people, assuming that group of people is totally separate from your original audience, which obviously it's not, there's going to be some overlap, but the real question is how much that overlap is, right? Because, um, if there's a hundred percent overlap and you're just cannibalizing your own sales, then like you say, you're paying Apple 30% for nothing. Um, but if on the other hand, it's a completely separate group of people, people that would never have noticed your website or whatever your, whatever your marketing materials, you know, are, um, then, then that's just a bunch more software you get to sell. And it's totally worth that 30% cut because otherwise you wouldn't have been able to reach those people. So I know that you have, we, you and I have talked about this, but can you kind of give your take? Cause you've sold on both platforms. Are you still selling ether on the Mac app store? I am still selling ether on, on both the Mac app store and direct on my website. And your point is a good one. Uh, of course, if you're if you're getting a lot of or or especially entirely just new sales through the app store that you would not have gotten otherwise, well, who cares about the thirty percent? It's more money overall. Um, my my own sort of experience with that, and you know, I, I'd have to run well. Actually, you'd have to do a real A/B test, but just thinking thinking about how sales have changed uh, from before I sold on the app store to after. I I think my sales probably increased by about twenty five percent after I put Ether on the Mac app store. And about half of my sales now are on the App Store versus uh, on my website. It's, it's very evenly split, which means, of course, that 
yes, some sales were cannibalized. People that would have bought it on my website now buy it on the Mac App Store. But there is this actually pretty decent chunk that probably never would have bought the app at all uh, if it weren't on the App Store. So you're, you're exactly right. I, I, I do think there are some other downsides, though, to selling on the App Store. And the biggest one for me is, is uh, not being able to have a direct relationship with my customers. When somebody buys an app on the App Store, you just get it in a sales report the next day, and it's quite you know, anonymized. You can see what country they were from, but you don't know who it was. You don't have an email address. Um, that, you know, that it's, especially if you're used to it, but just in terms of marketing, it's actually really nice to know who's buying your software and you kind of get that free if you're selling outside the app store. Uh, so I, my advice in that regard would be if you're going to sell on the Mac app store, and I think this is equally true actually for iOS, do your best to try to you know, create some relationship with your customers. So like I, I actually ask people for their email address when they first launch the app and it's entirely optional. They don't have to provide it. And I'm clear about that, but, but a lot of them do. And it means that I can, you know, send out a, a email when there's a big new version with a new feature I want people to check out. Or if I come out with a new app, I can use that list to market to them. And, and you know, uh, that it, it's nice. It's, it's even, even, a, it's a really small thing, but it's nice when somebody e- emails me for support and I can tell if they bought the app or not uh, by whether their email is in my customer list. Um, I think I think the the sweet spot for for most Mac developers and sort of what I would recommend if somebody asked me would be sell your app on the App Store and outside the App Store. There's no reason you can't. It does make for some extra work because you have to support two dis- distribution channels, but you kind of get the best of both worlds. And it turns out that at least for me, it's it's really evenly split between the two. Um, like I said, half it's about exactly 50-50, and it has been that way for several years uh, in terms of number of people buying on my website versus the App Store. And that way I can, you know, I can send out beta test versions. I've got a licensing system that actually works with App Store receipts in the in the non-App Store version, so I can send out a, you know, a beta version to somebody who asks for a bug fix and I don't have to wait for App Store review. Um, I can do uh, really quick update cycles. I've got... Uh, I, I, and you know, it's not actually a ton of extra work once you do the initial setup. I don't, I, the code base is the same. It's not, you know, I do have separate targets in Xcode so that I can, for example, not include my auto updating code in the app store version or my license key code in the app store version, but you know, 99% the exact same code base. And I kind of get the best of both worlds. And I think I'll just continue to do that with new Mac apps that I write and release. Um, all right, Andrew, we are about out of time, but do you, is there anything else you want to mention about how making money in the app store that you think our listeners should know about? Yeah. So I just wanted to talk about a, a couple of resources. If you've, you've decided you want to develop an app and particularly if you want to sell it outside the app store, there's some resources that have been valuable to me and I thought other people would like to know about them. The first one is called uh, Mac SB, which stands for Mac small business. It's actually an email reflector um, that has been around forever since long before I was doing this, and it's it's made up of people. Some some people are iOS developers, but at this you know even this far after iOS came out, that list tends to mostly be Mac developers, and it's a good place to discuss the business of selling Mac apps. Most of the people on there are indie or work for small companies, and they're happy to talk about you know, advertising that they've done or marketing methods they've used or distribution channels or licensing schemes and all kinds of stuff. So I've found that really valuable, both the archives and the people that are on that list. Um, the other is that if you're going to sell your app outside the app store, you're, uh, one of the, one of the hard parts of that is you got to do your own 
payment processing, you know, website to take credit cards, uh, and license key, some sort of licensing scheme where you send people a license code. Um, you can do that yourself. It's certainly possible, but there are actually a couple companies that will that provide that as a service and you pay them a little, but it's not 30%. And the two that I've found, um, I don't have direct experience with either of these, but, but they seem really good are DevMate and Paddle. And then if you just want payment processing, I've been really happy with FastSpring, which is a company that really sort of, they, they do payment processing in general, but they're really set up to sell digital goods. And in particular, they're big among Mac developers. So that's, that's all I really have to say. I hope, I hope people, you know, I'd like to see more people developing for the Mac. And I think there's a lot of good opportunity there and it's a lot of fun. And, um, you know, it has, has some unique and, and nice advantages compared to iOS. Before we move on, we're going to take a quick break and thank our sponsor for this episode. Hired is the platform for the best iOS developer jobs. Candidates registered with Hired receive an average of five offers on the platform, all from a single application. Companies looking to hire include Facebook, Uber, and Stripe. With Hired, you get job offers and salary and or equity before you interview, so you don't have to waste your time interviewing for jobs you might not end up wanting. And of course, it's totally free to use. Plus for you, our listeners, you will receive a $2,000 bonus from Hired if you find a job through their platform, just for signing up using the show's exclusive link, hired.com forward slash Ray. Thanks again to Hired for sponsoring this episode of the RayWendlet.com podcast. All right, Mick, your 20 minutes starts now. What are you going to tell us about? Well, I think this kind of follows on a little bit from what Andrew was discussing there, but it, it applies to all of Apple's platforms, not just Mac OS. We've covered it several times in... Uh, all the different seasons that we've done of the com podcast now, and that is whether or not making iOS apps, Mac apps, uh, watch apps is a sustainable business. And we've talked about sort of the doom and gloom uh, that came out 18 months, two years ago, uh, that, you know, apps that people on the outside considered successful weren't making enough money, indie developers were having to go get full-time jobs, all that kind of stuff, and that Apple weren't doing enough to help developers build a sustainable business now we've just listened to andrew tell us about some of the stuff he's doing to to make some money and and it sounds like he's been in it for a good while now and and it's continuing to do that um but in terms of sustainability apple actually it was pre it was just before wwdc this year wednesday the 8th of june um uh article appeared on daring fireball which is uh, john gruber's blog and it was the day after a phone call he'd had with Phil Schiller where Phil had talked John through a load of changes that were coming in the app store and that he wanted they wanted these to go out before WWDC because they claimed, I'm not sure why it was, but they claimed that they had so much to announce at WWDC that these had got lost in the in the message. I just wanted to talk about one of those changes in particular, and that was some changes to subscription based pricing. And this is because, like, one of the, well, many of the different reasons why people have complained about it being insustainable is because we don't have things like free trials, so we can't get, um, we can't give people our app to try for 30 days to, you know, to try and persuade them to to buy it, and then therefore we can perhaps charge a little bit higher. Uh, There's no recurring revenue because, you know, people have kind of been, the mentalities have been changed that they pay once and they get access to an app free forever, even though, like, the traditional model uh software model was that you know you pay and for for 
the point release, so the 1.0 or the 2.0, and then when the next point release comes on, you get the the sort of uh, the smaller minor updates for free. But then when the next big point release comes along, then you pay again, and that was always the sort of model that developers were used to. And then when the the iOS app store and, the, and then the Mac app store, which followed suit, came along, you know, all that changed, and you know, it was uh, it, it may it really make things a bit more difficult to to build a sustainable business. So the first change that they announced or that Phil announced via John's blog was that they're making some big changes to subscription uh, based the subscription model on the App Store and obviously all this is managed through iTunes Connect. Now previously like the recurring so it's specifically the recurring subscription that we're talking about not the non recurring or renewing I think it is renewable and non-renewable we're not talking about the non-renewable it's just the renewable subscription and prior to this, it was limited to a really small subset of categories. So it was like um, streaming music, uh, newspapers, magazines that had gone digital, that kind of stuff, where it was traditionally a subscription-based model and, they, and Apple wanted to get those in the store, make them digital, so they offered a you know subscription-based pricing. But that it was kind of confined to those very, uh, that very sort of niche uh, group of categories. That's all gone now. So you can apply subscription-based pricing to any category, uh, which which straight away is a is a big deal because this means that somebody that you, you move from this uh, buy once, use forever model to sort of software as a service. And we've seen some big players move like this. I mean, outside of the App Store, but people like Adobe um, have gone this way and they, with the Creative Cloud rather than paying once for access. To their software, you you pay a you know a recurring monthly fee and, and you continue to get access to it. So we've seen this outside the app store. So it's great that this is coming to the app store now. And and as I said, it's all app stores, not just iOS. Um, so we're going to talk about that a little bit more shortly. But the other big change that's coming is, and this is again, I think will make a lot of developers happy, is that we've just talked about the seventy thirty split. Apple taking thirty percent. Well. Apple are changing that percentage for subscriptions. So you still continue it still continues to be 70-30 for the first year. But for any subscribers of your app beyond that first year, it changes to 85-15. So basically they half their cut. Now they claimed or Phil Schiller claimed this was because like it's in recognition that the developers do most of the work. They're the ones that are offering the product beyond the original sell. They're the ones that are doing the hard work to retain that that customer. So therefore, after a year, um, Apple dropped their their cut. Um, so two two really big changes, and I think those are going to make some real some real dents in that. You know, um, sort of. I don't want to call it a myth, but it's kind of. I think a lot of people are making money out of the app stores, and a lot of people aren't making money. And I think for those that aren't making money this will help. And for those that are making money, it will help them make more money. Um, so I think sort of both sides win. Going back to the changes to renewable subscriptions that uh, that you can do now, that, as I said before, it was only like magazines and things like that. And traditionally, like even when they were printed, magazines, if you were going to go into a subscription of magazines, they would give you like a, you know, a six six issues for the price of three or you might get the first one free or you might not have to you know they'll we'll send you the first one but we'll only set up your subscription after the first month if you like the magazine all that kind of stuff to try and entice you into that subscription and one thing that developers have always 
uh, asked for and begged for ever since the inception of the App Store was free trials. And this is one of the things that they have brought into, well, when they've widened that scope of the, the categories that can uh, have subscriptions, that has come along with it. So now you can release an app and you can put it on this subscription model and you can say, okay, like you can download this and use it for 30 days and not pay a penny. And then we will just start your subscription after that 30 days or however long you know you want that trial to be. I think there is set um, periods for the trial. I don't think it can like go on indefinitely. But but so, you know, we can check that box off now. We, ha- we now have a way to offer, you know, trial. Uh, and therefore, on the flip side of that, one of the arguments is from consumers. If you offer me a trial, I don't mind paying a little bit higher. If I walk into the store and see your app, and it's twenty dollars. I, I might, you know, turn my nose up at that, but because you're you're asking me to trust you to make that investment, that you're gonna then I'm gonna get some value from your app. But if you flip that round, if you let me use your app for thirty days, and I can determine whether or not I get any value from it, I'm probably more likely to pay you the twenty dollars. Now, um, people go, oh, well, you know, you can use my app for free, and I'm not getting any money. But if I wasn't gonna buy it in the first place, you haven't lost any money. But if I buy it off the back of being able to use it for 30 days and assess the value it's going to make to my life, then you have actually made money. So I think that's a that's a huge change that we can now offer sort of in inverted quotes free trials. But it, I mean, it amounts to the same thing. The next thing that you can do is you can offer uh, multiple tiers within your subscription. So, I mean, um, if you sort of take the analogy is like the bronze, silver and gold tiers. And for each one of those tiers, you can unlock sort of various uh, combinations of features within your app. So, so you could get somebody in at the base level, you know, and they're paying you, you know, a small amount each month. But then, you know, it's actually a professional type app or like an iPad Pro app or that's something. To unlock all the features, you can, you know, go up silver, gold. You can have many of these tiers and sort of you deal with it inside the app about what what those tiers mean within the context of the app. But in terms of the app store, it's just a different price they pay each month and they manage the way that you can move between those tiers so if you move up it's it's done immediately but if you move down it's done at the end of the current billing period so that way like nobody loses any money which i think is is quite good there are many different price points now so there's 200 different price points available for subscription-based apps so they've actually widened the number of price points available before that number was just like you pay once price points and subscriptions were, were much narrower so they've widened that out now to 200 price points which is which is really good you can now change subscription prices really easily and uh, again this is something that even you know when it was confined to just those that that niche of those niche categories uh, was a pain to do but they've really they've really thought about it now so what you can do is for instance if you want to launch at a sale price so let's say You've got an app that eventually you want to sell at $20, right? But you want to build an audience. So when you launch it for that first four weeks, you actually only want to charge $5. So you can go in, with, you can set your subscription up for $5. Um, people get in, buy it. And then at the end of those four weeks, you can up that subscription to $10. But what you can actually choose to do is either uh, bring all those people from that first lot that signed up in those four weeks into that new subscription pricing at which point it will email each one of those people telling them that the price is going to change and giving them a chance to opt out and if they opt out it cancels their subscription right so that's one great feature 
that we can change price points within a subscription and Apple will handle all the customer contact on behalf of us and, and give, us an e give customers an easy way to opt out of that price change. The other thing you can do is you can grandfather those people in. So when you create the new subscription, it gives you the option to say, okay, anybody that's currently a subscriber can continue to pay that original price. So like uh, rewarding your early adopters. Um, but anybody that comes in after this point pays a new price. And you can continue to do that each time you make a change. It will give you the option for each of the previous price point changes, which I think is really cool. You can do territory-based pricing. So we, you know, like you, we know emerging countries, uh, emerging economies, um, don't perhaps have enough or have as much disposable income as established economies. So what you can do is you can offer the uh, subscription in an amount in a, in a territory that makes sense for that territory, which I think, again, is really good. So say if you wanted to go to somewhere like India, um, your price point may be much lower than it would be in the US. And again, that's all about, is it is it better to have some money coming in or no money? Because if, if your price, if you had one price point, regardless of where you were in the world, then, you know, it's inevitable that some people can't afford that. So those people, you will never get any money from those people. But if you lower it to where those people are and just in that territory, so everybody in that territory is paying the same, but you have, you have varying price points across, you know, across, well, it's the world because there's app stores available everywhere now. Then you are going to get some money from those places. So again, you know, that's just a win-win for the developers. Uh, and then the final big change is that previously... Subscription-based apps were either monthly or annual renewal, uh, but they have now opened that up as well, so there's more intervals. So we have uh, monthly and annual like we had before, and then we also have every two months, every three months, and every six months. So you as a developer, you can go in and you can set up your subscription, but you can base it on the uh, traditional software model of, you know, every year I'm going to do a big upgrade and I'm going to set me subscription to annual. So... You know, anybody that pays now will get it up until the new one. And then, you know, when we take over, they get free access. As long as they continue to do that, we'll give you, you know, access to the new one. If you stop paying, then you just get to use the one that you've already got. Or you can you can move to something more frequently. Like so you, might, you, might, you might say, okay, well, I want to release, because I can now, because it's sustainable, I want to release smaller, more frequent updates, uh, but still sort of considered and paid. So you might move to a, a three-monthly subscription. So I think all those changes uh, that Apple announced, I mean, these are huge changes because it basically changes the dynamic of how uh, developers can sell their software and sort of appease a lot of the problems that developers had and issues with the way that the uh, software was sold through the app stores. But I think it, eventually it will also, we, we kind of talked about the shift in mentality towards subscriptions. I think it will also change the mentality of people that, you know, we often blame the App Store for that change in uh, mentality around perceived value. You know, if anything above 99 cents is considered expensive. I mean, anybody outside the App Store would find that, you know, incredible. But yeah, in, within the App Store bubble, like that's how it is. It, it was a race to the bottom and it's kind of stayed there. And I think this will allow you to sort of shift away from that. So, I mean, that's pretty much everything that changed in subscription pricing. Uh, there is a great, uh, video that was that is of a session that was done at WWC about this stuff. It, this is the, this session is the only 
time they mentioned it, WWDC, like I said, this came out the Wednesday before WWDC uh, on John Gruber's blog. I mean, I'll put a link to that in the show notes because it's it's really interesting. And, and I don't know if I've done it justice talking about these changes, but, but if you go and watch the video, like the guys do a really good job of explaining all these changes, what they mean to us in terms of developers. They walk you through how to handle it all in iTunes Connect. Uh, they've made some great changes to iTunes Connect. We know we're all developers. We've all had years of iTunes Connect. We know what a pain uh, in the ass it can be. But they have done some really good work to make it much easier to work with subscriptions, to set them up, to understand what's going on, to do that grandfathering that I talked about, to change the price points, all that kind of stuff. Is, it's like one click now. So definitely go and watch that, that video as well. Make sure it goes in the show notes. So we are pretty much out of time, but I just wanted to ask you one question about that, Mick. Um, I listened to the the, the Gruber, uh, the talk show, the podcast, and when he mentioned some of these issues, and I think ATP or another podcast followed up, but it, in all of these things, one of the things that wasn't clear is just what is the line between what can and can't be made into a subscription app? Because it's it's open to every category of app, but not every app truly qualifies for a subscription model. Is that correct? And And do you have any... Did the session tease that out at all? No, the session didn't mention that once. <laughs> and nor is any of the stuff that I've read about it, either on Apple's website, in that session, in the blog posts, including Groovers. Um, it doesn't really... I mean, they, they make a huge song and dance about the fact that it is now open to every category, but there is nothing to say. But actually, we will look and judge each app on its own merits. Like, that isn't mentioned anywhere. But I know when, when he talked to... Oh, whoever it was, Phil Schiller, about yeah. it on the talk show. He, they said, you know, it's not you don't want to pay monthly for a calculator that doesn't have any new features, uh, unless it, you know. But then it's uh, for me, it's like a question of like, well, okay, could you like what just what does it take to tip that scale so that you kind of qualify? And I mean, obviously, you want to provide value to your customers if you're serious about what you do and you have some pride in your work. You don't want to just. It's not about skirting around the rules and trying to get a subscription pricing for something that really, truly you aren't providing additional value, but it would be nice if there was a little more clarity. And maybe that's one of those things where, I mean, in the past they, they come out with rules and then the developer community kind of pushes back and it kind of, it's like they don't know off the bat. And so it kind of through some bumps and scrapes and some people kind of getting kind of being disappointed because they publish something that then gets rejected. Maybe it'll be one of those situations where we kind of settle into something over time. I mean, I think so. I, I mean, that seems to be the way that Apple are going these days. I mean, it, like another example from WWDC is is how they locked down Siri. I mean, we've talked about that in a previous episode that, you know, we've got Siri kit, but it's actually only opened up to a very small niche. In, in fact, in a very similar way to uh, auto-renewing subscriptions were prior to this. And then, you know, but they have made it clear that they do want to open it up, but they kind of want to test the water. They want to see what's going to happen. You know, again, the rules around what those apps can and can't do are very loose and there's many gray areas. And I think that just that's kind of seems to be the, the way that Apple work now, rather than just coming out with a hard and fast set of rules that everybody has to follow. It's like, well, actually, let's let's wait and see what people go away and make with this stuff. And then we'll kind of try and build a set of rules that um, include 95% of what people want to do. But, you know, where that's where we draw the line, where is that, last, that final 5% where we really can't allow that in. Um, and that's where we'll draw the line. And I think that's probably what would happen with subscriptions. Um, I think it will be perceived ongoing value. Like, if it it, it would worry me that it's down to, because there's so many grey areas, um, 
that it's down to the person that's reviewing it on the review team that's going to make that decision. Rather, because at least on the flip side of having a set of hard and fast rules, it's kind of a, at least you know that regardless of who you get on the review team, you, you know you're going to be tracked the same. Whereas if it's very grey and very vague and is open to interpretation, then depending on who you get, you're going to get a different interpretation. That's just the way things work. So, I mean, that's probably the only downside. But I think if your app offered um, sort of ongoing value, so uh, I think Gruber in his uh, article gives like Tweetbot as an example, you know, because it's something that people use every day, uh, you get a lot of value from it. You know, something like an RSS reader, an email client, something that, you know, you are going to use frequently and then you ultimately will become to depend upon that and that you're going to get a lot of value from it. I think that is the kind of thing where you would have no problem, uh, you know, sailing throughout with you. I mean, that's not a guarantee. Don't quote me on that, but that's what I would expect. But, you know, if it's a fart app or, as you said, a calculator, although this PCAL, which is a very popular calcap that's been going for years and is on all the platforms you know so that might be a real gray one uh but you know these kind of fire and forget apps probably wouldn't get through you know if that's what if that's the road they go down then that's probably what what you know where, where the line would be drawn but as long as you can demonstrate ongoing value i think you'll be okay yeah i think i agree with that totally i hope that we'll see more development more sophisticated software being built because this creates space for that uh, where you can actually get paid as a developer um but i do have to cut you off there uh mick your time is up thanks again for joining us andrew thank you guys it's fun to be here um as always if you have any feedback uh, please get in touch with us at podcast at raywenderlich.com that's all for this week thanks for listening we'll catch you next time and that's a wrap Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.